the summer of 1973, WRNW station manager Donald J. Barnett packed up his radio station's Mount Kisco studios and moved them to 55 Woodside Avenue in Briarcliff Manor, New York. Joining him was 28-year-old sales manager and music director Kent Murphy. The Mount Kisco lease was up. I'm not sure what really created the need for the move, but... You know, it was such a cramp. We had no room there. You know, it was literally two rooms about 12 by 12. So the fact that we had four rooms and Briarcliff was like, oh, my God, we have four rooms. So it was a question of space. DJ Bob Maroney was part of the team brought over to the Briarcliff location by Don Barnett. Well, first of all, he was a great guy, very mild-mannered, never got really pissed off at anyone. He also did the midday for quite a while after I signed off the morning show. And his air work was great. I mean, he, he did a great show. And then after he was done, he would fill out the commercial log for the next day. And he would handwrite and all that stuff. He would get the information from one of the owners in New York who sold a lot of time to WRNW. Plus, we had a local sales staff as well. So all these commercials were handwritten on the log. Then he also would print what are called music sheets. And as you played music, you would put down the artist, the song, the album, and he would compile that and give them back to the music department. And then I think it was once a year, BMI and ASCAP would uh, need a log of what music you were playing, and then you would be charged licensing fees. So Donald took care of that. Donald took care of hiring people. And really, when you think about it, he hired Meg Griffin. He hired Howard Stern. And of course, John Bracca, who went to RVR, Tom Marrera. Uh, So, you know, he really had a great ear for talent. He never told us what to play when to play it. If you wanted to do an entire set of female artists, go right ahead. Whereas there were other radio stations at the time where, oh, no, 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 you got to separate the females by a band or a a male artist. And yeah, that's what we did. Occasionally, somebody would play a a classical piece. So yeah, we were uh, very, very adventurous in our musical tastes. Mercy's sake, sunny, breezy, and milder this afternoon. Highs near 70. Partly cloudy tonight, lows in the upper 40s. Tomorrow, partly sunny, breezy, and cooler. Highs in the low 60s. Chance of rain, 10% this afternoon, 20% tonight, 10% tomorrow. For Friday, sunny and cooler. Under really neat-looking skies, it's 58 degrees. Well, from Westchester 107, that's what you call your basic new news and weather. Good afternoon, I'm Bob Maroney. And for the zipper gripper on the by, this is Skyhooks. I think a lot of us just thought that we could do pretty much anything we want to do. And... No one said a word, and that was true of ownership, too. Donald J. Barnett just never tethered us down and told us what we had to play, and neither did ownership, which really, when I think back to it, was pretty remarkable. And, you know, we could intersperse comedy records in between the music to try and pull sets together. A lot of people were into Fire Sign, and they play a whole side of Fire Sign. No one said boo. Yeah, it it was... uh, I guess youthful exuberance reigns supreme. You know, we don't like Vietnam and, you know, we think uh, pot should be legalized and we love rock and roll and we want to go to concerts and 
wear blue jeans. You know, so there was this kind of lockstep. We're all in agreement of what we want to do. I don't remember very much animosity there at all. It was a very uh, easy group to work with. The new WRNW was to adopt a progressive radio format, which even for the time provided the DJs with unprecedented flexibility. In the time that we were doing it, it was basically a four-part combination. So rock, blues, jazz, and folk, and a balance of those four different genres in music. So it was a very broad-based music format. Our theory was to be softer in the morning hours, so lean more toward folk in the 6 to 10 time period. And then by the time you got to 8 o'clock at night, you could certainly go in a much heavier format, play just about anything you wanted at, at that point. I think what it really defined it was thematic sets, uh, which obviously has almost completely disappeared from the radio. There's a little bit of it on XM on, on the Deep Tracks channel. Uh, we'd play Sun Ra. We would play Dizzy Gillespie. We would play R&B hits. I know some of the other stations would play the Tower of Power, but we played the deep cuts of Tower of Power. You know, so we would play even some of the very obscure uh, country rock albums and bands that you would be hard-pressed to find them on NEW or even PLJ when they were allowed to play what they wanted to. We had a new music bin, new rock music bin, and we played a, a lot of jazz, so we had a new jazz bin as well. And I'd venture to say, except for at the time... The jazz station in the city, that's the only radio station in the city that played more jazz than we did. That might have hurt our listenership, but I think if you're an adventurous music person, you know, you enjoyed that too. I think we managed to hopefully entertain the listeners with a whole platter full of, of great music, all genres. No rules, baby. We, we really had no rules at all. In fact, I think it was sort of, the, at least when I was first there, it was sort of the intention of the ownership that, that we not do anything that could possibly attract any money to the place because their business interests were elsewhere and they needed something that they could write off on their taxes. So the more non-commercial it could possibly be, and that redounded to our benefits as, as the young DJs were, were trying to do our own things, man, because we could play and did play absolutely everything under the sun, from classical music to, to odd European imports to the latest pop to whatever happened to appeal to us. It was great. 23-year-old DJ Tom Jones, a.k.a. the Duke of Darkness, joined R&W in 1973. I started listening to R&W because of Watergate, really. I was taking a radio to work with me all the time so I could listen to the Watergate hearings. The central question at this point is simply put, what did the president know and when did he know it? And then when they were off, I sort of would tune around the dial and, and stumbled on this radio station I had never heard of before that was playing just the most wonderful music. So I was I was thrilled to be, to be able to go and actually go to work there. They were just that little bit more out there with stuff that even then when PLJ and, and 
NEWFM were doing the stuff that they were doing there in the early 70s, R&W was, was a little bit more like a college station in that they would play, gee, <laughs> you really never knew what you were going to hear. And that was the, that was intriguing to me. R&W's Briarcliff location was a converted residential home, which housed the radio station as well as other small businesses throughout the years. To me, it was very congenial. You had an office downstairs when you walked in the front door where the phones were people answering the phones. You'd go up a narrow staircase to a narrow rooms upstairs, and those were the studio, and then in a closet was the AP ticker, be in the closet. Little bathroom across from the AP ticker, and the other room was really meant for production. So, yeah, you were in tight quarters, but everybody got along, did pretty well. One of the, the great memories I have is the late Marcus Zanakis, who was our chief engineer. So I'm there doing the morning show, and it's very quiet, and all of a sudden I hear boom, 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 somebody coming up the stairs, and it's this very larger-than-life man, and uh, he introduced himself to me, and he said, do we have any problems? And I said, well, yeah, the transmitter readings are really sketchy. They really don't work all the time. So he tested it, and it didn't work for him. So he took his hand, bam, 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 against the meter reading machine, and it worked. And he said, let that be a lesson to you. <laughs> so even today, if a computer's going wrong, I'll give it a good smack <laughs> just to be on the safe side. Between Kent Murphy, who was the original music director, then I took that job over as he became like the sales manager. We amassed one of the finest libraries in all of the New York metro area. And we had, right in the studio itself, a big wall filled with albums. Then, I think it ended up A through maybe M or something. So if you wanted M through Z, you had to run into the production studio where we had all the other albums. And that was where we did most of our commercials as well. Well, it was just it was just a house in, in Briarcliff Manor. There was, I think, a travel agency and a hair cutter in the rest of the place. And we had one slice of it with an office downstairs for the sales staff and then upstairs for our record library, the studio, and our air studio, which was kind of tucked under an, an attic. So the ceiling was slanty. And it was small, but it was cozy. Gosh, especially in the summertime, it was very hot up in there. We only had one really noisy air conditioner that, that had to be turned off when the mic was on because it made so much noise that you wouldn't be able to hear the DJ. Little itty bitty place, like a closet where the wire service machine was for our news and a similar space for uh, bodily necessities across the hall. And other than that, a, a great honking record library. We had a really wonderful record library there. One of the great things about that place. Uh, the Amazing Blondell uh, audience was another one. And uh, we would, all, of course, play Led Zeppelin, The Beatles, Rolling Stones. But we would also play some of these other artists who, when the records came in and it just jumped out at us, we would just go into the studio and just tell a job, here, play this, this is great. So that was one way we discovered some of these bands that eventually got a little more notoriety, like The Straubs and Gentle Giant was another one. And, you know, we just had a great time discovering all this new music. And instead of having to wait because it had to go through 
a music director, a program director, and whoever else, we just immediately walked into the studio and said, yeah, play it. It's great. WRNW at the time, up until 1977, uh, maybe even a little bit later, it was totally freeform. You know, there were 8,000 albums on the wall, you know, for the library. I mean, you could basically play whatever you wanted. It was certainly different than the way things are today and how it evolves. People don't have any choice anymore. Everything's in a computer. You're not even playing CDs. People don't even know what they are anymore. Back then, we used to pull records off the wall, put the needle on (laughs) the track, and let it go. So it was completely open to whatever you wanted to do. 21-year-old Ted Utz came to R&W from Syracuse in the spring of 76. We were all really young, and it was really our, our first job in the business. I mean, I was lucky enough to have a few jobs in and around Syracuse, New York, but it was my first regular full-time gig. It was our first time around. We were 22 years old, so there wasn't a lot of ego. There was a lot of learning going on. I think there was some frustration because... So much of the equipment was real crap, but we had a lot of fun. And obviously, here we are 45 years later talking about it. So it evidently made an impact on the community and on the business and certainly on all of us. I love playing new music. You know, we really got excited about the the new things that came out. I remember going into the studio one night and I saw, you know, a pile of a half a dozen records I go, oh, wow, what's this, what's this? So I went into the production studio, put it on, and I go, wow, I like this. And I instantly just walked into the studio that night for my shift, and I played it in the first five minutes. And those were really exciting things for me. You know, finding new artists, finding new songs. Back then, there was a different mentality. In 1973, if nobody played Bruce Springsteen, you know, in 1976, if nobody played Tom Petty, if nobody played any of the CBGB's artists that were coming out in 1976 and 77, which is a lot of what WRNW was about at that time. We loved all that stuff, both from London and from New York City, a healthy percentage of what we were embracing at that station at that time was really happening culturally. So um, that was really kind of where we were and what we wanted to do. That was the niche that we were able to carve out for ourselves. Although the 3,000-watt station was tiny in comparison to big city competitors like WPLJ and WNEW, it quickly became a player in the biggest radio market in America. I was in New Jersey when I started listening to this, so you could hear them there, hear us there. It blanketed Rockland County, most of Westchester, and on up into Dutchess County, and a little bit we would leak into, oh, the Bronx and some corners of, of Long Island. That's probably a million people, in which for a little dinky radio station like that to have the reach of a million people or more than a million people is a lot of folks. The only time anybody in Manhattan ever heard us was if there was a, a power failure and, and we were the only ones on the air. I remember that happened a couple of times. That was a thrill to me. <laughs> it, was, it was like a blackout. But the blackout didn't quite extend as, as far north as Briarcliff Manor. So we were on the air when all those other stations were dark. We had the opportunity to live a big market life out here in you know, New York's backyard. Well, we were always competing against Manhattan. So we had to you know, figure out a way, which was tough, but musically be a little more 
in depth in terms of what we played. Be cooler uh, as the vernacular was in the day against NEW. But you know, it, they were really more of a just in the same group. You know, I went down to visit Dennis Elsis and find out how he organized the music library because I said, so how do we want to do this? You know, how do we want to put the albums in in the studio and and how did he select, you know, what should go on the air? Because you would get 30, 40 new albums a week, and you have to decide which ones are going to go in. I kind of, uh, I would say, grew up listening to mostly WNEW-FM in my formative years. And uh, everybody knows, basically, that station was one of the original progressive stations. And when it uh, began, it was pretty much uh, free form. The jocks played uh, what they felt like playing, and everyone's show had their own personality expressed uh, not only through their words, but through the music that they were playing. But that really didn't prepare me for the experience of working at uh, R&W. It was amazing walking into that place for the first time because of just the sheer number of albums that were there for someone like me who thought I had a lot of albums. <laughs> it turns out I really didn't. There was uh, just amazing stuff to choose from, a lot of which... I had no idea even existed, and uh, I, I realized pretty quickly that what I thought I knew, not only about radio, but what I thought I knew about music, was a lot less than I actually uh, really knew when faced with that kind of library and the freedom to, to play whatever I felt like playing and listening to the other jocks there who you know, had already established their thing and the kind of music they were playing, I quickly realized, boy, I've got, uh, I've got a pretty steep learning curve that I've got to dive into as quickly as I can. Harris Allen joined the station in 1975 at the age of 23. He remembers how R&W's DJs, most of whom were just starting out in the industry, learned a lot from each other about music and broadcasting. I think when I first got there, I, I sort of relied on what I knew, which was, uh, you know, sort of a, a mix of a lot of different things. I was a huge Beatles fan. I, I was a big fan of Yes. I was a big fan of Poco. I was a big fan of Chicago. I mean, some of this was not really music that R&W played a lot because, you know, they were just <laughs> interested in more, uh, you know, more diverse stuff that, you, that listeners could not hear on the other radio stations that they had the ability to listen to if they so chose. I spent a lot of time... Uh, hanging out uh, after my shift with uh, Tom Jones, who was on after me doing the overnights. And uh, Tom had an amazing knowledge of music. We just kind of would hang out, and uh, i just sort of observe his process and listen to the stuff he was playing and start realizing that, uh, wow, there's, there's a whole universe out there that I didn't know much about. So it was a great education, really listening to 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 everybody at the station because they all brought their own individual uh, experiences to, to the music they were playing. It's interesting how the jocks would play off one another. I would hear Tom Jones play something and think to myself, why didn't I think of playing that? Or I would hear Kent play something and I think, what a stupid idiot I am. I could have played that too. So, you know, you would write these lists of stuff that other people were playing and uh, you would work them into your own sets of music. I learned a whole lot more from the, the other DJs around me about the various things that, that they were fond of, jazz and, and blues and, and world music and what was going on in European rock from, from the different DJs because each of us had his or her own obsession that uh, we brought with us to the station and we were able to indulge ourselves with it. 
nostalgic, sure, you know, but you know, reality sets in. Um, I miss segues. I miss theme sets. I miss, because they, there was some real artistry that went on in those days, and it maybe it's true that we were half stoned all the time, and it sounded greater than it actually was. But you know, it's listening to yourself. It's listening to DJs that you consider to be good, and uh, for lack of a better word, stealing little things that you can from them here and there until, you know, ultimately, however long that may take, in my case, years, sort of meld it all into what ends up being who you are on the air as a personality. Eventually, R&W caught the attention of major record labels who helped to introduce their artists to the station's musically sophisticated audience. There would be 20 or 30 albums that would come in in a week period of time. And since I was sales manager on the air and trying to take care of the music, you didn't have a lot of time to figure out whether this album should be there or not. So you, you don't forget we had turntables in those days. So, you know, I would sit there and listen to two or three tracks and say, nah, put that one away. If I thought it was good, it would go in a little bin right by the turntables and that would be new ads. We were the tiny station in the suburbs as opposed to the big NEWFM in New York. So it was always a challenge when some new album was due out to get the copy as quickly as possible and get it on air. The first A&R guy that came to the station was Joe Mamone with Capitol Records. Learned about the station. He, he came up and sat down with us. He was very good about it. He was an older, he was in his probably late 40s, early 50s, which was like, wow, it's an old guy. You know? And um, I remember him coming in and saying, well, oh, Ken, I've got this new uh, thing. It's uh, called reggae. It's it's very hot. I think you should be playing it. And I went, really? You know, and I said, hey, we ended up playing reggae, but at first, they thought, I'm not sure that fits the format, but well, we'll think about it. So then I tried to press then WEA, Warner, Electra, Atlantic, huge label, three labels in one, and tried to get them involved, and then it kind of mushroomed there. A&M started to come in and provide albums, and then you got record service. So if you would have each one of those record companies sending you new albums every week at your home, <laughs> so you'd get home record service. People who were record reps were our age, and they understood uh, that there was a viable alternative to the big boys in the city. And I worked very hard to get us listed in an album-oriented rock radio publication called The Walrus. And that was the newsletter, so to speak, of what other radio stations were doing all over the country. Uh, and even though we were small potatoes, we at least got listed and we were there and the entire record community could see what we were doing, what we were playing. And I think that helped too. And the fact that these other our age record promo people realized that we wouldn't take everybody for interviews, but we would take a lot of people that the other radio stations decided they'd take a pass on. And I think that helped us with the record labels. We started getting a, a reputation for being very progressive and playing a lot of different kinds and styles of music. The Fire on the Mountain album by Charlie Daniels, which became a huge, huge album. We were the first ones in the country to play it. And Charlie was so thankful that he drove up from the city with his record promotion man. And they came in with this huge carton of pastries and all kinds of coffee. And we sat 
during the morning show in the production studio and talked for a couple of hours while we played tracks on the album. It was such a wonderful feeling. And finally, we felt like, you know, we kind of made our mark on, on New York radio because then other record labels were saying, you know, maybe we should get our people up there. So Hall & Oates came up. Their first album was Abandoned Luncheonette. Even WNDWFM wouldn't even see them, but they came up and had a great interview with our night jock. Uh, we also had David Sanborn up there, uh, Brian Ferry. Now, we, we had everything under the sun that we possibly could want except for money because the record companies loved us since we would play absolutely anything. And if they were trying to hype a new act, all they had to do was to bring it up to us and, and we would be glad to play it on our air. So they set us up with any kind of tickets to any kind of show that we wanted to go see. And we had trade-out advertising deals with a couple of local restaurants, including one really good one, where in exchange for the station running their ads, we could go and eat once every week or so and, and uh, just sign the tab. And a good thing, too, because the most I ever made, and this was for 25 on-air hours a week, I made $120 a week. $120 a week was uh, doo-doo. Some of the biggest perks of R&W's relationship with record labels were tickets to some of the greatest concerts of the 70s. The band, the Kinks. I think a big one that, that jumps out for me is, yes, Rick Wakeman had just rejoined the band so that, that it was their most famous configuration and this was on the 3rd of July, 1976, the day before the Bicentennial. There's an outdoor concert in Jersey City at Roosevelt Stadium. That was an amazing show, but there was a jillion of them. And what was the, a lot of the best ones were at places like the Bottom Line, where they would often set us up with not just tickets for the show, but you could have dinner and drinks, and, and all you had to do was sign your name at the bottom of the list, and you usually got a plus one, so you could bring somebody along with you. That was cool. <laughs> I, I really liked that. By the way, there were other things that the record companies tended to do that we won't talk too much in deep, but they would tend to bring that to the radio station and say, hey, uh, you want to step outside for a minute? And uh, Oh, yeah, thanks. Yeah. We were invited, all of us, to now host concerts at either colleges or small venues around Westchester County, even over in Rockland County as well. And I remember being on stage for the new writers of the Purple Sage and introducing them. And I think that was one of the very first times I was on stage to introduce somebody. But it went on to bigger and, and better things. Among RNW's many local fans was a legendary composer who tuned into the station from his estate in nearby Cortland Manor. We had a very famous person living in the area who shockingly listened to WRNW. Maybe my favorite moment, and this, this I think sort of, sort of speaks to, to how broad the appeal of uh, WRNW at its best was. So I'm playing, and I believe it was when it was brand new, the Beach Boys Surf's Up album, which is a masterpiece in my mind. The phone rings. I pick it up. It's Aaron Copeland. I'm getting a phone call from a listener 
and the listener being Aaron Copeland. He wanted to know what was that that I just played. He was calling to tell me how much he's enjoying listening to my show. From then on, I told everybody, hey, we have Aaron Copeland listening to you, but you got to be on your best behavior now. If, if I could appeal to the teenagers in Briarcliff Manor and to Aaron Copeland, for, and if the station could do that, then we were doing something. Really, what a shocking, shocking phone call that was. But great, very gratifying. Although the station's jocks enjoyed free records, concert tickets, and a certain level of local celebrity, they were definitely not making rock star money. Working at R&W, really, you were impoverished. <laughs> you really were. I mean, my brother and I shared an apartment, and I, we just barely were able to, to pay the rent or the electric bill. So, yeah, it was pretty heavy duty, but we enjoyed the hell out of it. And that probably was more important at one point than the money. Bill O'Connell, I think was his name, came in to work and do production for us. And he was very good at it. He, had, he did some really great stuff for local retailers that was unlike what was being aired at other stations in Westchester. And he did a goofy one. At the time, Connecticut School of Broadcasting, they may still be alive, was doing commercials to get people to be DJs. So he, he did a fake spot about goofing on Connecticut School of Broadcasting. He says, yeah, you get into broadcasting and you can make two, three, four dollars an hour. We did pay $4 an hour. If I'm memory serves, that was the going rate in that uh, to be on the air. For a lot of us, though, it, was, it really was all about the music. And that's what drew me to it, still does. 1975 saw the departure of Donald J. Barnett and the arrival of two people who would leave an indelible impression on the station, Meg Griffin and Joe Piasek, a.k.a. Joe from Chicago. Joe was program director, Meg was music director, and, you know, we all gathered. I was there with the two of them every night because all of our shifts kind of came together. And we would talk about, you know, what was going on and, you know, have you heard the new Sex Pistols, the new Stranglers, the new Talking Heads? Have you heard this band, the Talking Heads? You know, so those are the conversations that we were having, and we were really excited about it. And all of that music fit in perfectly with a lot of the catalog stuff stones whatever that we were already playing meg was a, was a terrific dj and a, and a terrific air personality and is still to this day i reckon and good people too and she was very green when she first got there but she had great years and really sort of put me in, in the shade and i think most of us in the shade just by how quick she was to be able to, to pick up on new stuff i mean she i always i thought of myself as being a progressive kind of guy, but, but Meg, Meg kept his ears much wider open than I ever did, and uh, eventually became the, the music director of the station, which really helped us when things like punk and new wave that, that I would have, frankly, been tempted to turn my nose up at as, as too primitive or too irritating in some way. Meg, Meg was right off top of all of that stuff, and Joe... Although he was not quite as polished an air personality as he was, Joe really understood radio, and he was full of ideas. So he became eventually the program director of the place and really tried to make us into a more professional kind of... And did it very subtly, because he was very much of the, the hippy-dippy kind of guy, but... 
while he was being the hippy dippy kind of guy, he was also shaping us into a more professional seeming, more coherent seeming team than we had been before. Joe was um, very good on the air, very creative. He also had connections to artists that they would uh, call in and he would talk to them. And and then Meg, who at, I think she was on later at night, would introduce people to the Talking Heads, to Patti Smith, etc., etc. So, And very early, early, the Stiff Records was a huge English label with Elvis Costello and the Attractions and so many great artists that she would play them. So when those new albums came out, man, suddenly we were like really the... Uh, punk rock radio station in Westchester. So we would play all of that interspersed with the usual stuff. And it was great. And I think people uh, appreciated that. Whereas they would have to go out of their way to find somebody who was playing all that stuff all together, not just segmenting it from hour to hour. As the jocks of R&W became more confident, they tended to buck convention and push boundaries. We did things like like doing uh, a show that was literally off the front porch of that building, where they they moved a little bit of equipment down onto the porch, and uh, the DJ would sit there, and people would just come and hang out and and uh, be part of the uh, the whole scene. But we also had a guy who was also on, I think it was on Saturdays, John Vitiver, who did his show from the porch, and he did it live. And they strung out a big, long cable, a microphone cable that they plugged into one of the boards. And he had a kid running the board to play the records. And people would come by. They would drive up, wave, and, you know, whatever stuff that John had to give away, he'd give away. And so it was, a, it was crazy. But that's why WR&W was uh, so great. During the late 70s, a young fan from Ossining named Allison Miller asked to visit the station. I started listening then, and when I was in college, and I decided I'd like to pursue a, a career in radio, I actually went to the studio. I think I must have been, like, a junior in college. They let me come up and watch, and I thought it was, like, the coolest thing ever. Like, I just felt like I had arrived in that old building in Briarcliff Manor on the top floor, I mean, it just, to me, seemed like magic, you know, like magic. R&W came under new ownership in 1977. As was typically the case in such situations, there was a cleaning of house in more ways than one, and a certain soft-spoken DJ was given the title of program director. If you go back to the movie Private Parts, he portrayed himself pretty well. He was a huge nerd. I'm Motti, station manager. How are you? want to be a disc jockey? Very much so. I've wanted to be a disc jockey since I was seven years old. But are you an idiot? No, sir, I'm not an idiot. I, In fact, I have a communications degree from Boston University, and I would work very hard for this company if given the opportunity. I mean, he, he looked nerdy. He acted nerdy. He was quiet. He really made little impact at the time was really all about Meg and Joe. And then a new, a new owner came in in the fall of 1977 and basically let everybody go because they, he wanted to just play off a playlist and we were rebels. We're, we're not going to let this happen. And Howard didn't care and we all left and the, the guy made Howard program director. And that lasted for a little while. But he was um, quiet, unassuming, kind of out of his element. 
you know, I mentioned that we, we had the record library, 8,000 albums on the wall, and then there was a bin uh, right next to the, the DJ chair where we had all the currents and recurrents. And, you know, Howard would never get up out of the chair and get anything off the wall. He never played anything older than, like, you know, three months old. I go, Howard, why don't you just get off your butt and go over there and pull out a Stones album or pull out a Moody Blues album? And he goes, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. And I think years later, Howard was not in it for the music. Howard was in it to do what Howard does. He had to exercise all of his, his demons. They literally came in and grabbed out about one-third of, of the record library and just took it and stuck it on the front porch. That was the end of the record library. And then the records that were left were labeled which tracks you could play and which tracks you couldn't. A guy named Fred Schreier from Scarsdale, New York. He was married to a very, very wealthy woman, and she wanted to buy him a toy. So she bought WRNW Radio, and Fred wanted to control everything. You know, everybody at the station would play a different song. We didn't just play American Girl and Breakdown. We played a bunch of songs from that very first album. You know, Fred takes over and there's a new format. And it's like, okay, well, the single on this record is Breakdown and you can only play Breakdown. And they did that. They, they purged the record library. 8,000 records were put out on the porch to be taken away. And by 5 o'clock in the afternoon, the staff, I guess Megan and the team, had put all of the records out on the front porch. So I drive it get there about 6.30. Well, look at all those records. I was driving a Volkswagen bus in those days. Long story short, that night when I drove home after my shift, I had 7,000 albums in my Volkswagen bus. And those were so heavy that the frame of the bus was always, the middle of the bus was always hitting the, the street on the way home. But I managed to get them all home. So, yeah, my eyes lit up when I saw those babies. Mm-hmm.